This episode was brought to you by Nail It and Scale It, the world's leading fast growth program for business. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Unstoppable. Today, we have Peter Grester, award-winning foreign correspondent who spent over 25 years working for the BBC, Reuters, CNN, Al Jazeera, and some of the world's, in some of the world's, I should say, most volatile and violent places. After his 400-day imprisonment in Egypt on accusations of terrorism and inventing the news, Peter has made it his mission to advocate for media freedom everywhere. He is also the UN, UNESCO Chair of Journalism and Communication at the University of Queensland. In 2014, Peter and two of his colleagues were actually arrested in Cairo while working for Al Jazeera and charged on terrorism offences where they received a seven-year sentence. In letters that were smuggled from the prison, he described the arrest as attack on media freedom. The letters helped launch a global campaign that eventually got them released after more than 400 days in prison. Since then, Peter has come, gone on to become a global advocate and continued to campaign for press freedom everywhere. And it is with my great honor and pleasure to welcome today to Unstoppable, Peter. Great to have you here, mate. Thanks very much, Cohen. Great to join you. Mate, you've got quite the story, um, and I, I guess the most. <laughs> and look, uh, and what's interesting, it, it seems to be a story that is becoming a lot, a lot, a, a lot more common than what it was going back, you know, let's say ten or twenty years ago. But I'm curious, you know, apart from you know the thing that really puts you, and I guess there's a number of things that have put you on the map. But obviously, the 400 day imprisonment is something that, um, you know, has got to be something significant in your life. How did you get into journalism in the first place? Oh gosh. Um, the, the honest truth is, is that it was uh, because I didn't know what else to do. There was nothing else that grabbed me. It was I remember sitting at home um, the night before. I knew I wanted to study something, but I didn't know what on earth I wanted to do. And I remember here in Queensland, you had the, what was called the uh, QTAC form, the Queensland Tertiary Admission Centre. Um, and it was a way that you got into universities. They had a huge book that was about that, that with all of the courses that you could do and I remember thinking midnight before this film was due, I had not a clue what I wanted to do. So I remember <laughs> thinking, if I don't know what I do want to do, let me get rid of everything I don't want to do. And I started, I took a big felt pen and started crossing stuff off. Architecture, no. Accounting, no way. You know, medicine, no. Law, no. And I kept crossing and crossing until the only thing that was left was journalism. At that point, had you even considered journalism as a career? No, I hadn't. I hadn't. But the thing that really enticed me, the thing that really got me into it was, was the license to indulge your curiosity. Yeah, um, right. I, I remember I nearly gave it away when I spoke to someone, a, a, a colleague, an old school friend who I hadn't seen for a while who asked me what I was about to study. And I said, oh, I'm, I'm going to do journalism. And she just went, oh, my God, journalism. I said, well, what's wrong? And she said, endless English essays for the rest of your life. <laughs> <laughs> Um, until I realized that actually it's not about the writing. Um, I mean, there are plenty of journalists who love writing, you know, in it because of the writing. For me, it was about curiosity. It was about a license to stick your nose into other people's business, to have an excuse to do that. And that's the thing that's always driven me. And what area of journalism did you first um, cut your teeth in? Oh, it was local journalism. Um, right. I went down to Shepparton to work in, in, in country Victoria, a local TV station called GMV6. Um, so how do you go from GMV6 to, you know, working for the likes of BBC, Reuters, CNN and Al Jazeera? That's a big leap. Yeah, it was a bit of a big leap. I kicked around Australian newsroom for, for a few years. I went from um, Shepparton to to Darwin um, and then from Darwin to Adelaide. I just got jobs in, in local news, local TV stations and, and I was in Adelaide working for the 10 Network. And um, I read this book called One Crowded Hour, which is a biography of an incredible Australian journalist called Neil Davis. And Davis covered um, Southeast Asia. He was, he, he was one of the most courageous um, and most professional um, journalists I've, I've ever come across. And he, he covered Laos and Cambodia, some incredible conflicts. And I read his biography and I thought, that's what I want to do. Um, it's not so much that it was that I wanted to, to, to be on the front lines, although that's where I ended up. It's that I wanted, I saw the work that he did with incredible integrity and incredible professionalism combined with a really strong sense of social justice. 
and the adventure chucked in for good measure. Um, and when I when I read the book, I was looking thinking about how I'm going to make that step. When the ten network went into receivership, they they went broke at the time. They and to save money, they closed down the London Bureau. And I thought, well, look, it's ridiculous. You can't have one of the main Australian networks without a London correspondent. So I marched into my boss's office and said, listen, if I quit, if I resign my job here and take myself to London, will you use me as a freelance? And he said, sure, <laughs> why not? We know you. We know what you can do. Go for it. And uh, so that's what I did. Wow. And so what year was that? That was 1991. I'm showing my age here. November 1991. <laughs> uh, I did a bit of work for the the network uh, I, I kicked around for a while and just started yeah. doing freelance gigs um, and then uh, followed a girl into Yugoslavia and is that where you started to move into the more volatile reporting space yeah yeah I and not just because you followed a girl and because you're in a relationship <laughs> with a girl in Yugoslavia well, I'm assuming no, the volatility not. wasn't just in the relationship it was yeah it wasn't it wasn't that I I, I actually had the relationship I, I kind of was hoping to, to develop something no I met this gotcha. crazy Irish girl in a pub in London which is all <laughs> a place where all good stories should start um and she was going off to this place called Magigori. she was on this Catholic pilgrimage and wow. um Medjugorje was in the middle of a place called Herzeg Bosnia, which is a Croat-controlled area of Bosnia, right in the heart of, of the conflict zone. Um, but it was reasonably secure because of the way the Croats had managed to control it. And the place had always been a place of, of Catholic pilgrimage since the 1970s, when a group of young, young locals started seeing these visions of the Virgin Mary. And these pilgrimages were going all the way through the, through the war. And I thought, what an amazing story. So I told, you know, I, I, I said, you know, this is extraordinary. And she said, well, why don't you come? And I, I mentioned it to two <laughs> friends who worked for the ABC and the Australian. And with a couple of days, I got messages from the foreign editors of both saying, for God's sake, if you're at all thinking of going, let us know, because we really need freelance stories. And I thought, well, it's a no-brainer then. I've got the story, <laughs> I've got the clients, and there's the girl. It's, it's, a, you know, it's the perfect scenario. It is perfect, yeah. It didn't, and is, I mean, I got, sorry. No, I was just going to say, so is that where you got introduced to volatile uh, or to conflict zones? Is that? Yeah, it pretty much was. I mean, uh, things didn't go quite as I expected with the girl. It was hardly surprising. But um, I did actually learn not only that I, I, I really thrived in that kind of environment, I also learned that I was pretty good at it. Um, yeah, right. I enjoyed it because it was... It was obviously a physical challenge. Uh, working and operating in that kind of environment um, on the front lines was was incredibly challenging. But it was also an intellectual challenge as well. These stories are very complex, very difficult ones to tell, and and there is no wiggle room. If you get it wrong, then you get into serious trouble. And I found all of this to be a really fascinating and exciting mix. Um, and as I said, there was also a sense of social justice as well in there, that these were stories that I felt needed to be told. And so for all of those reasons, yeah, I, I kind of found my feet. So did, did you actually get exposed to some significant um, conflict in some of the jobs that you were on? Yeah, yeah. No, I went to Sarajevo that trip. And Sarajevo wow. was, was under siege at that point. Okay. Um, <laughs> It was, it was one of these things, like I wasn't ever planning to go to Sarajevo, but I was doing a profile of, of an Australian military officer who was in command of the UNMOs, the UN military observers. Um, and he was leaving his job um, to become the UN Secretary General's military advisor on the region. And uh, I thought, well, it's a great chance to do a profile of him. I sold the, the idea to the, to the Australian. But the only place that he had time to talk to me was in Sarajevo. So I, I, yeah, I thought, well, well I'll, I'll just go in. I'll fly in there, I'll do the interview and I'll get out. Um, as it happened, um, I flew in, I did the interview and then the uh, Serbs opened up a big offensive and, and uh, got stuck in Sarajevo for, for, for quite a few weeks and, and uh, started reporting on the front lines. I managed to work with some of the yeah, other, wow. um, other uh, foreign journalists that, that, were, that were working as correspondents there and they helped show me the ropes. I've spoken to another correspondent, and um, one of the <clears throat> conversations I had was around the the thrilling, um, adventurous like nature of working in you know a conflict zone where there's a lot of unpredictability and volatility, and you know it's almost like walking around doing a bungee jump, you know, four or five times a day. Were there any parts or points in your journey um, where you actually 
felt unsafe and you started going, shit, I wish I was just reporting back in Shepparton. You know, <laughs> I'd much rather be reporting about the Shepparton Bakery and their latest feet on a pie right now than, uh, you know, staring down the barrel of this AK-47. You know, um, look, I've often felt that I've pushed things too far. I mean, you know, Sarajevo was the first the first opportunity I really had to, for that experience, but I was working with guys who are really good right. and who knew and understood. I mean, I've, I, I've always, I'm not one of these thrill seekers, someone who, who leaps into the unknown just for the sake of the adrenaline rush. I think there are a lot of, a lot of um, adrenaline junkies in the business and not necessarily healthy. But I do believe that, you know, that we've all each got our own tolerance for risk and, and you kind of manage that, that tolerance. You manage the level of risk according to what you're comfortable with. Um, I guess my tolerance for risk is perhaps a little bit higher than most people. <laughs> Um, but equally, I don't think it's, I, you know, I, I haven't, I've, I've, I rarely push myself into places where I think I'm going to get into real trouble, although clearly I have. I mean, I remember a couple of times in, in, in Afghanistan um, when we were under fire, we were going out towards the front line one day. Um, the government had said they'd taken this important, this really strategically important military base that, was, that had been under the control of the Taliban. And um, I thought it was I thought it was bullshit. I just didn't believe them. I, you know, it was strategically, tactically, it was too difficult. It would have been very, very difficult for them to take, and and we hadn't seen a kind of military action that would have triggered that. And so I, I said, look, you know, I'm going to go down and check. And they said, sure, go for it. So we went down, and as we approached the front line, I remember thinking, um, this is not going the way I imagined it. My little spidey sense was going. We pulled up by the side of the road next to some soldiers and said, "Listen, where's the front line?" And they said, "It's it's right here." And I said, "What do you mean?" And they said, "Yeah, you see those those little blips up on the ridge there?" And I said, "Yeah." And they said, "They're they're, they're tanks, and they're Taliban tanks." And right on cue, those tanks started firing. You could see little muzzle flashes from them. And we dived out of the car and 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 hit hit under a culvert. And just as we did, there was the, the rounds started finding their range. And started coming in around us, and we wow. hunkered down under this under this culvert under the road, while the tank barrage was was hitting us. And when that happens, of course, what what they're doing is trying to cover for an infantry advance. And so we right. knew that they were trying to keep us out of the way while they could bring up their their ground troops. Um, and so I realised that the last thing I wanted to do was to get stuck in a gun battle um, in a culvert where there was no way out um, with, with the Taliban when the tanks were, were heading. So we had to, we had to, to take a, a, a big, deep breath um, and scoot out of there as soon as there was a bit of a, bit of a, a, a lull in the, in, the, in the firing when they had to reload the tanks. What an experience. Wow. And so how much later was it that you found yourself in Egypt? Oh, quite a few years, you know, between, between there, there was uh, time in Iraq and time in Latin America and, and in Somalia and, and, um, wow. and Congo and, and Sudan and so on, a whole load of conflict. Um, and, uh, yeah, I wound up in Egypt in uh, the end of 2013. Um, you know, we were, we were covering, I was working for Al Jazeera then. Um, I left the BBC and, and moved over to Al and I was East Africa correspondent based out of Nairobi. And we were covering, as I said, Somalia, um, South Sudan, the ongoing war there, and, and Eastern Congo, Democratic Republic of Congo, where there was a lot of fighting. And um, I had a few trips to, to Iraq and, and um, to Baghdad and, and Lebanon and so on. And um, I was then called up to, to Cairo for, to cover the Bureau in Al Jazeera, uh, for Al Jazeera just over the Christmas New Year period in 2013. Um, I didn't think that there was anything particularly dramatic about it. There was an ongoing political crisis, but it hadn't really erupted into the kind of fighting that I'd seen elsewhere. Um, and it was just really to tread water. Um, we weren't doing anything particularly radical. And, you know, the, you remember that um, around 20, the end of 2013, was a period of political transition. There was a lot of, of there was um, the Muslim Brotherhood led to 2011, just for the sake of context. The Hosni Mubarak had been in charge for, for, for decades. 
in Egypt as a long-serving autocrat, and he'd been enforced from power um, during the Arab Spring uprising there. A year later, there were fresh elections. There were the first democratic elections in Egypt's history, and the Muslim Brotherhood won those elections. Um, and it survived for a year as the first democratically elected government in Egypt's history. But there was, again, a lot of pu public frustration and anger with the way that they were doing things. And so there were a lot of protests on the streets. The military stepped in and said, listen, we're a democracy now. You've lost the, the confidence of the people. You've got to go, and here's a gun to your head to make sure that you do it. And so the Muslim Brotherhood was ousted from power. There was an interim administration when we arrived, and there was a lot of conflict on the streets between rival supporters. Um, and so it was volatile, but as I said, there wasn't open fighting at the time. I didn't know the story very well. When you're as a journalist, when you when you when you're in one of these places, you get a feel for the boundaries, for the edges, just how far you can push a story before you're going to end up in trouble. Egypt wasn't one of those places, so I was playing with a very straight bat. Government would announce some changes to the constitution. We'd pick up the phone and call the opposition to for a reaction, and then you'd find an analyst to make sense of it all. Just so happens that the opposition was the party that was last in power. That was the Muslim Brotherhood. And the government really didn't take kindly to that. They'd started accusing the Brotherhood of being involved in acts of terrorism. And so it turns out that by talking to the Brotherhood, we became guilty of in the government's eyes of advocating terrorist ideology. And so we were arrested on the night of December 28, 2013. I had no idea that that was coming, of course. This was all down in the future. I was just sort of hanging out in my hotel room, getting ready to go out for dinner with a friend of mine who I hadn't seen for a while. And um, when the security agents burst into the room. Wow. And do you, do you remember that moment well, like when that door first swung open? Yeah, absolutely. I remember it like it was yesterday. And what, what did you think? Like, what do you remember thinking? Oh, my God. They've found me, but they didn't, I don't know what for. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, well, I didn't know. I mean, it took, it took a few moments. So what happened was that there was a, there was a knock on the door. That, would, that in itself was unusual. Usually whenever anybody wanted me, they used the phone. Um, but I didn't think too much of it. I remember cracking open the door. I didn't bother looking through the, the peephole. And as I did, it was sort of flung in as if there was a powerful spring behind it. Um, I was pushed to the back of the room. There were about eight or ten guys who came in. I, I still honestly don't remember how many there were. And they started ransacking the place. They, they grabbed all, they searched it. They grabbed all of my gear, uh, my phone, my, my laptop, my cameras, all of my gear. And um, at this stage, were these guys presented in military in uniform? Plain clothes. Okay. So this is, no, 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 you're thinking. No, plain clothes. Yeah. 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 I had no idea. And they didn't. I didn't know who they were, whether they were police or, or, or thugs. You know, Egypt has, has a bit of a reputation for lawlessness. Um, you know, it, was a, it was a major hotel. It was the Marriott Hotel. So it was unlikely to be the, the room was being raided by a gang of thugs, but I, you know, it wasn't immediately clear. But they moved with a degree of professionalism that said that these mm -hmm. guys had been trained and one of them was okay. clearly in charge. And um, I demanded to see a, a search warrant. He said, look, can you speak Arabic? I said, no. And he said, well, <laughs> there's no point. Um, and uh, he told me that I was being taken in for questioning by the police. Um, and so I marched down to, I, again, at this point, I still had no idea what the hell was going on. They wouldn't tell me anything. Um, they marched me down and threw me into a, into a room which was being used as a police as a police police office, I guess, in the, uh, the ground floor of the hotel. Um, one of my colleagues, Mohammed Fami, was also brought in, and um, we ended up in, 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 the, in the police cell for the next few nights. 400 days. Well, initially in the police cell for, for about uh, three or four days. Pretty, okay. It was you know, crazy. It was, a, it, was a, it was a very cramped kind of cell. There was box was about eight foot by eight foot square. So the equivalent of like a Egyptian Raman center? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This tiny box, uh, as, as I said, eight <laughs> foot by eight foot, but, but with 16 hell. guys crammed in there. Yeah, wow. Yeah, yeah. You sort of pick it in your head. And, and at what point did you start to realize that there was uh, perhaps another agenda going on? And you realized it, it was a little bit more serious? Well, you know, we... 
attempting to, we were interrogated by the uh, National Intelligence Director, the, the Interior Police, the Secret Police. And I was told then that the charges, well, it took a few days for them to, to tell me what the charges were, but it, it was, you know, when we heard them, I, it was blown away. As you said in your introduction, we're accused of being members of a terrorist organisation, aiding and abetting a terrorist organisation, financing a terrorist organisation, uh, broadcasting false news with intent to undermine national security. I mean, Bloody when hell. you think about it, you know, th these charges are about as serious as you could possibly get, yeah. short of yeah. pulling a pin on a grenade and throwing it into the middle of a crowded room. Um, this, was, this was incredibly serious. But I... I struggled for a long time to reconcile that gap between the, the seriousness of those charges and the very ordinary journalism that we were actually doing. I couldn't see how anybody could, could balance these two things or look at, look at the evidence and to the conclusion that we'd somehow been engaged in, in, in acts of terrorism. Um, and I wrestled with this for a very long time until... I finally realised after a few conversations, because we, I was moved into another prison um, where initially I spent some time in solitary confinement and then started to have some contact with my neighbours who were all members of the, or all the activists who were responsible for the, gen, for the original revolution that toppled Hosni Mubarak. These were the guys that organized the protests that brought millions of people onto the streets. And so they're very, very savvy political operators. And they helped me understand and unpack what was going on. I realized that it wasn't about anything we'd done. It wasn't about our journalism per se. It was about what we'd come to represent. And that was that was prepared to interrogate all of the parties involved in the conflict and to, to hold the governments to account. And, and that was something that they didn't want. And they were using us as an opportunity to send a message to all journalists that were operating in Egypt. And that's when I, I, I wrote the letters and smuggled those letters out, declaring this not to be an assault on us, but an assault on press freedom. Mm. And that was, what year was that? That was... Um, well, it was the end of 2013 that I was arrested, and, and by the time this unfolded, it was um, early 2014. And what were your biggest lessons? Because obviously when you're sitting in jail for 400 days, especially when you've been accused of crimes that you've not only not committed, um, but you're not involved with in any way, shape, or form, you know, I, I can only imagine that gives you a lot of time to think, reflect, um, and ponder. What did you spend that time doing, and how did it affect you? Um. There are a lot of lessons. I mean, I, I guess depends on, I mean, where do you want to go with this, Cohen? There are lessons, there are personal lessons, and there are also lessons around activism, I suppose. I mean, the, the, the lessons, the personal lessons that I learned are things around um, discipline and, and order. And I guess these are lessons that a lot of people are relearning, and I'm certainly relearning at the time of lockdown. I mean, we're locked down here in Brisbane at the moment, and having to remember some of the stuff that I, that I learned then. And one is, is around, the first lesson I think I learned was that you, you, your head is your own worst enemy. Mm. Um, I realized very quickly that prison was sending a lot of the guys that I was with crazy. They'd been yeah, wow. in, 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 in incredibly difficult situations uh, for a very long time and now losing, losing touch with reality. I realized when I saw them that actually Physically, we had all that we needed for survival. Food, it wasn't necessarily great food, but it, but it was enough. It was nutrition that would keep you alive. We had potable water and, and we had a solid roof over our heads. The one thing that the Egyptian prison system is very good at providing. Um, and, and so in that environment, you know, food, water, shelter, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, mm -hmm. that's, that's all you need. We weren't being physically tortured. We got knocked around a few times by some of the guards, but nothing that was ever life-threatening. And in that environment, the only thing that's left is, is your own head. And that's what prison is designed to do. It's designed to mess with your head. It's designed to put you under psychological pressure um, by physically constraining you. But it's the psychology of it that really that lies at the base of it. 
when I realized that, I realized that fundamentally it's a mental problem and, and I will either survive or die in my own head. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's what that's where your focus has to be. And that means that you need to focus on things mentally active, not allowing yourself to lose touch with the dynal rhythms. You've got to be, you've got to sleep at night and wake up during the day. Um, I never laid down during the day. I didn't want my body to learn that it was okay to lie on my bed during the day. I wanted to make sure that I was always up and active during the day and always horizontal and sleep at night. It sounds like a small thing, but but those routines, those rhythms, those diurnal rhythms are really important to to staying sane and mentally strong and healthy. Um, Always kept a program of physical exercise going. Um, the, um, The Australian Embassy was able to give me um, a program called 5BX, uh, which is five basic exercises. It was, it's fairly popular online. Um, it was designed by the Canadian Air Force to give their, their airmen um, a way of staying fit if they're ever captured and, and, and held in confined spaces. And it's become a bit of an on- internet sensation. Since then. I found it to be very, very fantastically helpful at, at giving me an exercise routine. Mm. Um, we needed to be spiritually strong. So I, you know, some years earlier, I went through a pretty difficult breakup and I, to try and steady the ship, I went and did a meditation course. Um, it was a Vipassana course, a fairly hardcore oh, Vipassana. 10 days. Yeah. Vipassana, I call that the, yes. full, the full contact meditation. It's like, um, yeah, yeah. It's probably one of the hardest, the, one of the hardest meditation disciplines that I've ever had to learn. I went and did it seven times in the end, but, um, I, okay, I, well, I, then, I, then you, you understand it. I understand the difficulty. Understand the it exactly. Yeah. And, and, and here's the thing, Cohen. After I remember when I went into the cell, and particularly through, through solitary confinement, they closed the door and said, listen, you're on your own. Um, I thought, well, I've actually got the tools for this. I've been here before. Um, and as you know, Vipassana is, is, is a very very difficult 10 days of silent meditation where you have no, no contact, no verbal contact with anybody, no eye contact with anybody. You don't, there's no reading material, no writing material. You're just alone with your own head. And, but it does give you a structure, a, a disciplined way of, of observing yourself, observing your own mental reactions and mental processes. And that was the way in which I was able to monitor and observe my, my own reactions to, to prison. Wow. Yeah, wow. Um, and I'm absolutely convinced that without that training beforehand, I'd have been in a, in a much more serious, serious situation. That's incredible. Okay, that's really interesting. Um, you also mentioned other lessons apart from personal lessons, lessons on activism. Tell me about those. Yeah, so... I, I, uh, the, the, there was a power, like, one of my cellmates was a guy called, one of my neighbors rather, was a guy called Allah Abdel Fattah, who was an incredible man who was, who was still imprisoned in Egypt. Um, an amazing secular intellectual, um, but he's, and, and very charismatic. And he's still in prison precisely because he is such an extraordinary character. And he'd been imprisoned by every regime in Egypt, um, from Hosni Mubarak to the Muslim Brotherhood, the interim government, and, and now under the current uh, government of, of uh, Abdul Abdul Fattah al Sisi. And he told me that the the power of of of, of a voice from behind the bars. He's, you know, he explained just how powerful and important um, a letter would be from prison. I didn't really appreciate it. I didn't really understand it. I, sm- I wrote the letter on toilet paper and we smuggled it out. And I had no idea how much of an impact that note would have. It, it really gave my family a license to campaign on my behalf and to speak openly about the issue of press freedom. It um, unleashed my colleagues around the world, my journalism colleagues. And I know for a fact, too, that that letter made it to Barack Obama's desk. Um, he saw it and, and decided to, to also get, get actively involved and, and, and spoke wow. to President Sisi a lot. So that letter seemed to change the dynamic. Now, I can't put my finger on the letter and say that that was the key thing. In fact, I can't put my finger on anything that got me out of prison. 
but I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely convinced that without the advice of, of, of Allah, things would have turned out very differently. Huh. And so now we kind of, <clears throat> you know, we enter an age where we're a few years down the track, um, a global pandemic 18 months into, um, and there seems to be a lot of discussion um, about uh, freedom of speech, freedom of press, you know, misinformation, disinformation, information wars. Um, and I think it's probably fair to say, and I hope you don't mind me saying this because I think you, you, you may understand where someone like myself is coming from. You know, I'm, I'm not uh, an academic. I've never been schooled in journalism, but I have, you know, been someone that's grown up with a distrust for the news, you know, just based on how I see the news has been presented, how I see the news has been manipulated. Um, and you know, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I'm a law abiding citizen, but I, you know, I, I feel like m some other people out there, I've grown up with a bit of a, a distrust news. And by the way, I grew up in a family that watched the news every night. You know, it was at five o'clock or six o'clock, whenever it was, news came on, the whole family would sit down and watch the news. You know, I grew up reading the newspaper, all those kinds of things. And what I've discovered is over time, I've started to become less trusting in news sources, um, less trusting in um, where the information is coming from, what the agenda is. And I'm going to assume that I'm not the only one. You know, because I, I I know that there have been many other people that are that are speaking up. You know, even now around censorship uh, on the social media platforms. Where where do you think we are when it comes to freedom of speech or freedom of press, or are they con two completely separate things that just happen to ha you know cohabitate in the in the same area? Um, so I think I agree with you. That, you know, trust is a big big problem. Um, the, all of the there's a there's a, an annual survey called the Edelman Trust Barometer, which shows um, trust in media around the world is is at an all time low, and part of that is the fault of journalists themselves. I don't think journalists have always covered themselves in glory. Um, part of the fault is is because of the changes in the industry, which have rewarded speed over accuracy, polemic over over sober analysis, um, the sensational over serious stories, and that, that doesn't help us, but that's also partly due to the, the way that the internet has changed the, the, the funding models of journalism. I think that the problem is also part of the way in which the internet has allowed people to, to seek whatever information they want in a way that confirms their own biases rather than, um, and I mean, we, you know, Trump often talks of, has often spoke about fake news, and then, um, but it turns out that he was one of the greatest purveyors of, of fake news. Um, what he spoke of, he made a famous remark in, in an interview with a, a CNN journalist, um, in which he said that I, or he was asked about why he, why he, he, he says some of the conspiracy theories that he did. He said, I do it because I, 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 I want to make it so that people don't know what what the truth really is. Um, he wanted to create this kind of fog of confusion, and that's very real. It's not just Trump's own fault, but it's created an environment where it's very difficult for people to know what to trust because they can get anything confirmed, anything they believe confirmed outside mm. of, of journalism. Now, you spoke about freedom of speech and freedom of the press. Freedom of speech is a very broad subject. Um, it's a very broad kind of umbrella idea that covers all sorts of things, including freedom of religion, freedom of association, but also freedom of the press. So press freedom is, is a subset of, of freedom of speech. But I think it's a it's really important subset because for all of the flaws, the whole point of journalism is to hold the powerful to account. It, it's to create a professional class of individuals who have the time, the resources, the skills, the experience, the capacity to hold our, our political classes to account, the people who, are, who, who have power and control over us. And I, if, you, if you imagine a world where you take that class out, then all of a sudden if you, you see a world where all we have about, or the only information that we have about the behaviour of our politicians and our civil servants is through their news releases and Facebook feeds and Twitter posts. Now, I, I'm not sure about you, but that's not the kind of world that I, I feel particularly comfortable with. I think we need that class of individuals. We need a class of professionals who has the capacity and the resources to 
to interrogate government, to dig up the stories that, that our politicians would rather keep hidden. It's not always edifying, it's not always pretty, and it's deeply flawed as any human endeavour is. But most professional journalists, most journalists who work for credible news organisations, spend an enormous amount of time trying to make sure that the basis of their stories are accurate. And that doesn't mean that they're not biased. We're all humans and bias inevitably creeps in. But I'd wager that... Well, let me ask you this, Carol. Where have you been going for, for your news about COVID, for example? Well, Has it been funny. to social media or do you... Well, in the early days, I was probably, you know, scouring a range of different news sites. And this is where it gets actually interesting. This might be a, a curveball you didn't expect. But about uh, 12 months ago, I started an intelligence. I, I went out and hired um, a guy who had 18 years in signals intelligence, working in the intelligence for special operations for the Australian Defence Force. Uh, and I put together an intelligence service whereby uh, him and a couple of operators would essentially scour different sources of information that was based on a criteria of trusted information that the um, intelligence community uses and um, they would produce a brief for me twice a week and you know in most cases i would still go to news.com sydney morning Herald, and i'd still look at those bits and pieces just to see what the general temperature of mainstream news was but um yeah 95 percent of my consumption came from yeah the the intelligence that we accumulated from a range of different sources around the world and but, but let me ask you: Did that was that markedly different from what you were seeing on 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 the Great main question. news sites? Did it, did it did it suggest that the journalists were 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 hiding things or were involved in conspiracy? There was a lot. Well, put it this way: the, the one of the reasons I did there was a lot less noise. Uh, there was mm -hmm. a lot less, I guess you could say, conflicting information. The speed of information was a lot faster. But fundamentally, no. And this is what was, I guess, what you could say is interesting because I was, I was looking to be able to uncover aspects of, you know, certain angles of conspiracy. And the reality was we couldn't find a great deal. We could find a lot of, you know, um, uh, discussion and debate and, you know, unverified information, intelligence and, and data, but to find verified intelligence to um, confirm a lot of the stuff that was being assumed, it was very almost impossible. Well, that, and, that's, and that's my point, that, that the system is imperfect. But by and large, professional journalists will, get, will tend to get the, the, the core of the story right, frankly. Um, that's not to say, as I said, that there isn't bias in there. I mean, if you have a look at some of the debate around, around, um, around uh, lockdowns, the viability or the value of lockdowns, and you'll see differences of opinion and you'll see different news organizations leaning one way or the other. But most people would agree with you. And when I say most people, I'm saying this on the basis of, of some pretty solid empirical evidence that shows that during when, the, when COVID broke up, most people, a large majority of people swung back, swung back to legacy news services. Um, news consumption went up. The amount of time that people spent online on, um, on those news services went up and trust in those news organisations also went up. I think that's because people understood that actually in a, in a, when you have this vast fog of confusion online about what to do, what not to do, the risks and so on, that ultimately journalists who had the time and the capacity to research this stuff were, were doing, a re, doing a pretty good job. Let me stress it wasn't perfect. There, was, there will always be people, there will always be examples that you can show me which, where the system is broken down, and I accept that. But So what do we do in a scenario or in a world where we have you know, a difference of opinion at a broadcast or a, a, you know, a journalistic level? Because you know, I have read you know, a number of um, articles by you know, different journalists who you know, advocate for open borders, who advocate for, you know, um, <clears throat> Um, you know, bringing things back to a level of norm, suggesting that COVID is nothing more than a, you know, a severe flu. But then I've also seen, you know, a lot of journalists on the flip side of that saying that, um, you know, the complete opposite. And, and I guess it's in scenarios like that that the public go, well, fuck, who do we listen to when you've got the same newspaper saying two different well, things? Well, I think that's what public debate is all about. Okay, I think in Australia, for example, we've had this debate, but I think we've largely settled on the idea that lockdowns are necessary. They're painful, but they're necessary. There'll still be people who, 
there'll be on, that ongoing debate in the fringes. But by and large, I think the community as a whole has accepted that this is, this is the way we should go. And that is the result of, I would argue, good solid reporting where there's been a consistency about a, a consistent consensus about what the basic facts of the story are. In the early days, there was some debate about just how serious COVID was until we, we started to get to, to understand that it was deadly and highly contagious and very and potentially incredibly damaging. Um, and we came to a consensus, and that's the way good journalism and a good media environment ought to work. There is, that doesn't mean that there isn't still out there a whole load of rubbish, a whole load of bullshit around COVID treatments, for example, on social media. Um, that doesn't mean that on the fringes you can't find it. But in the mainstream, on mainstream news services, services that are organised and produced and written by journalists, you'll find a reasonably consistent consensus. And I think that's the way the system ought to work. I'm not saying there's no validity on, on the kind of, on, on, with the stuff that you get on social media, but we need to understand that that's what's, that social media is not verified. It's not professionally produced. It is not, doesn't, it's not held to account for what, what's produced on social media. Journalists are held accountable for what they write. They put their bylines to it. They stand by it. They won't always get it perfect, but at least you know who you can complain to if you see something that, that you believe is wrong or, or, or completely off, off, off the mark. Based on what you've said on the nature of the freedom of press, you know, it seems to me journalists have a massive responsibility when it comes to open, honest, transparent um, documentation um, and, and, and account, which to me would probably infer that the people that are doing the reporting need to be held to an incredibly high standard, you know, of integrity and account as well. So considering where we are, where there is, you know, there is more people now that, or there's people trust news sources less than they've ever been able to trust them before. Yes, we are seeing a reversion, but how how does how do journalists outside of just you know reporting based on the facts and what is true how do we fix the problem because it seems to me that the problem's only going to get worse before it gets better but well, you know <laughs> at some point somebody's got to resuscitate um a level of integrity around you know information delivery news service delivery in a way that you know is supposed to do what the job it was employed for in the first place, which was to uphold that class. Yeah, and and, and you're right, and that's and that's why I said that journalists have sometimes been their own worst enemy by being by being too fast or too sloppy or, or, or you know unprofessional in the way they've covered things or gone after clicks rather than integrity. Um, I, I recognise that these are problems, but funny you should funny enough that you should ask. We actually have a few ideas about how to deal with this. And the internet offers some solutions. There are, um, there are some people working on technologies at the moment to record and document how the sausage is made um, to make it clear so it's possible for you to put online all of the sources, all of the background information, the original interviews, all of the details about how you collated your information and how you put it together for someone who is interested to go through all of that background material to unthread it and, and see how, you know, what you actually did, how to, to literally see how the sausage was put together. I think that would be very powerful and very useful way of giving people confidence in what they're seeing. Oh, oh, My organisation, the Alliance for Journalist Freedom, is also talking about introducing a system of certifying journalists. We're not talking voluntary oh, certification yep. for journalists. Yep. We're not talking about accreditation in the way that you have a license to operate because we understand that anybody who has a keyboard and an internet connection ought to be able to publish whatever they want. But what we're saying is that if you apply to a certifying body to be recognised as a journalist, you would have to demonstrate a professional process, that you would have to show how you produce stories, you would have to show a commitment to a certain to ethical standards and principles, to a complaints process and so on. And if you go through that process, what the certificating body will certify is allow you to put something like a blue tick, you know, it would be its own little mark that you could put on social media. So the people would be able to, would recognize that this work is produced by someone who is recognized by their peers 
as working to a professional standard, to professional degree of, of integrity. And we think that that would provide upward pressure from people who want to be certified, to be recognised. We think that certification would give social media companies the tools, a tool that they could use to elevate and prioritise those stories produced by certified journalists. And we also think that it would give the public confidence to know that what they're reading is produced by, by someone who knows what they're doing. And so we think that, that there are ways in which we can distinguish really good journalism from, from everything else. Now, that doesn't mean that anyone who is not certified couldn't practice but we want to be able to find a way of recognising and rewarding those who, who, who are very good at what they do. We seem to be moving into an age of um, censorship, you know, uh, and I think it was a lot easier to censor people when there was less channels of communication. Now we have more channels of communication, more freedom of access and use of the publication on those channels. But we also have an increasing level of censorship, especially around, you know, sensitive stu su subjects. You know, corona is one of them. Politics is another. Corona seems to be the one that, you know, is most on the radar because I'm pretty sure most people have seen, you know, a censorship symbol or, you know, have seen a, you know, get your facts straight on the COVID when people are posting and have got, you know, keywords and phrases in there. What are you seeing are the problems with the current forms of censorship and how is do you do you see that there is a place for censorship and if so how would it be used and policed in a way that is moral and ethical based on the situation where we're in right now okay a huge huge, huge question, question. And, 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 <laughs> we'll finish yeah, with the we'll finish with the little one <laughs> <laughs> yeah how much how many more hours have we got to deal with this um look I, for a start Censorship in the classic form, in the sense of, of, of a government going through things before, before they're published, is something that I'm very uncomfortable with. Um, and, and we, you know, we, we don't have that, there's very little of that direct kind of censorship that's going on at the moment. Um, there is an awful lot of surveillance, which I think is also something we need to be very careful of and aware of. But that's another subject altogether. What I'm concerned about at the moment is the way in which most of, of the censorship, the control over the flow of information, whether it's through journalists or, or on social media, through other social media channels, is that the power lies with the social media companies. And as we saw just earlier this week, just a few days ago, in the case of Sky News, YouTube, YouTube executives sitting in California have decided mm. to take an Australian channel off YouTube, because they deemed that YouTube was breaching their, their, their um, community standards. Now, I have a real problem with that. We don't know exactly why YouTube hasn't been transparent about what community standards Sky News supposedly breached. I believe I mean, I'm, I'm, there's a lot that Sky publishes, which I think is dangerous and probably should not be allowed on air. but. I don't think that someone sitting in California ought to have the power to decide what an Australian network can and cannot be publishing without any way for, for, for Sky News or anybody else complaining or holding, forcing them to, or holding them to account for that decision. It's completely out of our jurisdiction. So I think there needs to be a way of making sure, and, and by the way, they talk about community standards, breaching community standards in social media companies as if that the community standards that are set in Palo Alto in California are the same community to apply here in Australia or in Nairobi in Kenya or in, in Dakar and Bangladesh or anywhere else around the world. You can't do that. The, the communities don't work the same way. They aren't common around the world. Each community has its own set of standards and values and things that will, will breach those standards. And we need to be very careful. Let me give you a very quick example. Please. And Facebook, Facebook ran an experiment. They've got their oversight board, which, which is supposed to be a kind of Supreme Court of Facebook. And they tested um, an example, tested a meme that was going around on Facebook um, with a young girl and a pretty little girl, with bow ribbons in her hair and a tutu and so on, and um, a, a thought bubble or speech bubble saying, kill all men. And it was kind of kind of amusing, it was a little bit off color, it was a feminist joke and it kind of, you know, when they tested that with everybody in the West, they also looked, this, is, this should be fine, it should be, it's free speech, perhaps it's a little bit on edge, but you know, come on, we ought to have a sense of humor. When they tried it in Africa, and they tried it in Nairobi, a girl from, a lady from Ethiopia, 
walked out. She said, this is unconscionable. She said, this is the kind of language that was used to trigger genocide, the kind of hate speech that mobilizes people to get people out to kill them, to, to murder their neighbors. She said, I can't, this is simply unacceptable. We saw it in Rwanda, we've been seeing it in, in, um, in Ethiopia. We've seen it in Kenya and a whole other host of other um, countries across Africa. This is simply unacceptable. And when you see and understand that this isn't about censoring political speech that's challenging a government, it's about censoring speech that's appropriate for a particular community. And I don't think it's appropriate, therefore, for someone in California to be making judgments in a way that is completely unaccountable. That's the kind of censorship that I have problems with. And I think it's incumbent on governments, even though I don't trust governments any more than anybody else, I still think that the judicial systems ought to be set up in a way that allows them to manage and police and control um, not just the flow of information, but the way in which social media companies manage that flow. In, 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 in our own countries, because this is where we set the rules for our own, for our own communities, not over, overseas in the US. Peter, I have to say, I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation so much so we might have to get you back on for a part two. Um, mate, you've also written a book, uh, that you wrote back in 2017 called the first casualty. Uh, is that now also still, is that still available just out of curiosity? Um, it's still available. You might struggle to find it in uh, shops, but uh, it's certainly online. Where can people find out more about you, mate? Um, uh, gosh, um, dig around. There's an awful lot on YouTube. Um, <laughs> Are you on the social channels? Do you have I a have, website? I, um, I don't, well, I don't have a website, but um, my socials, my social media channels are there. I'm on Twitter and I'm, I'm on Facebook. Um, the Alliance for Journalists below. Freedom has a, has a, is, uh, is a, um, uh, has a website where you'll find a lot of our information. That's where you do a lot of work and a lot of writing as well. Mate, thank you very much. And for what you've been through, I appreciate, yeah, your openness, your humility, and uh, also your humor. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been Peter Gresta on Unstoppable. Thank you, Peter. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. This episode is brought to you by Nail It and Scale It, the world's leading fast growth program for businesses. If you have ever wanted to grow your business faster than what you can right now, if you need to make more revenue, if you need more leads, if you need more clients, if you need to know how to plan your business in a strategic way in order to hit big goals, if you need to learn how to scale your business and grow your team and your business so that you have more freedom, then this program is for you. Imagine three days immersed with me where we cover all aspects of business, but we do it from an immersive, but also an execution standpoint. We execute every step of the way and we're looking at five key areas we're looking at your psychology we're looking at your marketing your sales your leadership and we're looking at your planning and how we integrate these five key areas to grow your business and your brand quickly so if you'd like to find out more information kerwinray.com